Hello, my brothers and sisters. Uh, that's right, our text this past week uh, from 1 Corinthians addresses the audience as brothers and sisters, which we talked about, uh, reminding us of the importance of what we are as a church, uh, the fact that we, uh, we have among our relationships this sort of uh, familial kind of feel, or at least we, we ought to in what we should be moving toward. Uh, but welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Um, we've got some great questions that have been asked this past Sunday, and uh, so let's get right into it. All right, the first one, uh, somebody asks, it's really hard to sort my Christian and political views. It's one of the most decisive areas in my life. How do I navigate Christianity and politics well? Um, yeah, this is this a this a. It's an interesting question uh, when we think about, uh, obviously, the incredible number of political views um, people can have uh, who are following Christ and like how different sometimes those political views can be. I'm, I'm just I'm trying to think about what we're talking about that that kind of lends itself uh, to this. I, I suppose it's uh, the fact that. The subject that we looked at this past week had a lot to do with the divisive character um, of the of the Corinthian church. Let's not forget that the division that was coming out of that church was not so much, uh, in fact, really not at all, uh, along the lines of very, very important matters, uh, like essential, what we would describe as essential matters of of faith. Um, like there isn't this idea that you're supposed to take a bunch of people that have radically different beliefs that are just completely unrelated to one another and they're supposed to somehow find like actual spiritual unity in that. That's not really what Paul was looking for. What was going on in the church was these factions that were being created by kind of uh, attitude of individualism. Uh, people were identifying themselves as being followers of one particular personality or another, and then leveraging that association as a, a way in which they were superior to other people that were part of the body, right? So really that's, I think, the, the tension that we're feeling here is the air of superiority uh, that people were regarding themselves with over others that they perceived as inferior because of, you know, maybe they had lesser associations or allegiances or things like that. And so that created this this disunity in the church. Uh, from a theological perspective, I think the expectation was that everybody, regardless um, of what were, uh, you know, their individual experiences and all that, they still had to they still had to be in agreement on the essential teachings of the church and the essential practices of the church. In that, if if you weren't on board with that, then you weren't actually part of the church to begin with, right? And so you're not even really the the, the object of this conversation. So when it comes to this, like our political views, uh, let's be honest, we live in a time right now where uh, people who are coming to and are part of the church can have wildly different political uh, views uh, and allegiances. You know, so for our, for all practical purposes, for us, it's you, you have somebody that might be a Republican, somebody that might be a Democrat, or somebody that's a conservative, somebody that's a liberal, or somebody that's very, very politically informed, uh, and somebody that may be far more apolitical, just doesn't care. Um, the question of how do I sort between my Christian and political views is an interesting one, because uh, I think our political views should be informed by our commitment to Christian ethics. Now, is there a diversity of Christian ethics that might ultimately result in different political views? Uh, I don't know. I think that there probably should be a lot. Uh, I think we should probably find a lot more common ground than we often do. Like the fact that politics has played a part in dividing us as the body of Christ, I think, I think that's problematic. Um, 
And I don't know exactly what the steps are in order for us to fix that, except that for me personally, uh, I just, I've come to this understanding over time that uh, what might be, say, certain political preferences, um, when I think about like who I am as a, as a voter in a country, a, a, a democratic republic that affords its citizens the opportunity to, to voice their wishes uh, by voting for certain candidates, uh, and even being involved in the, something like the legislative process. Like I understand that we have uh, civic privileges that come along with being uh, a, an American citizen, but I think that what gets lost on us a lot of times is the fact that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've actually been invited into a, a, the ethic of Jesus's kingdom uh, and the, that domain and that primarily our association or our allegiance shouldn't be so much that, you know, I'm an American as it is, I am a citizen of Jesus's kingdom. And that's not to just cast like utter disregard for a person's nationality. Like, I think it's perfectly fine for people to have a sense of patriotism and love for their country, right? I mean, it's their country after all, whether you're talking about somebody that lives in America or literally any other country in the world, um, nothing wrong with feeling uh, you know, like a sense of loyalty to one's country and to the people of one's country. The problem is when that actually surpasses the allegiance that we are called to have in Christ and the recognition that we're supposed to have for the body of Christ, which is far more universal than something that is limited to the scope of one country uh, or one political party or faction. Uh, that is, the body of Christ can be comprised of people along the spectrum of political views and understandings. Now, does that mean that every single political view is equally worthy? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that, again, this is kind of what comes back to, like the way I understand myself as a member of a society, as a participant in a, um, you know, a social enterprise, I, like I, politics, like little p politics refers to the way a group of people get along with one another, how they navigate the ins and outs of different human beings who have to live in company with and association with one another, like how we govern ourselves, how we care for one another, how we ensure that, uh, that needs are being met, that gaps are being filled, you know, all of those things, right? Like those are, those are political questions. How do we live together in society? Well, even, even where we may have a pluralistic society, that is people come from different faith backgrounds or no faith background, or, uh, like how do we actually all get along and ensure that uh, people are being taken care of? I, I have to, my, my integration in my society should be informed by the ethic of Jesus's kingdom and what he's called me to, which, you know, there's all, all kinds of things that that Jesus calls us to, like these high levels of living out our lives, you know, where we love our neighbors, ourselves, where we uh, love our enemies and bless those who persecute us and say all manner of evil things against you falsely. Like, you know, we, we put ourselves in a position where we defer to um, the needs of other people, right? Putting ourselves last and others first. And so there's, you know, that's some pretty incredible living dynamics that I think should inform, um, you know, how we live our lives. So anyway, yeah, I, I guess I would just say kind of bottom line, don't let, don't let your political views be your greatest, um, the, the greatest way by which you identify yourself, right? Like don't, don't ever see yourself as a Democrat or Republican before you see yourself as a member of the body of Christ, as a, as a Christian, as a person who is 
a participant in Jesus's kingdom because that's that's where we've been called to. And we know, like, if you study the, the teachings of Jesus uh, and the priorities of his kingdom, you'll find that he, he, he turns everything upside down, right? There's so many times that he says to us, like, I know how this is how the world operates. This is how the kingdoms of this world operate. But in my kingdom, we're going to do such and such. Uh, and so there's lots out there uh, that'll help you discover what that actually looks like and means. And if we were, if we all began really pressing into what Jesus calls us, I think we'd find ourselves not so politically divided, but actually more starting to go after uh, the same thing. Um, all right, second question is, how can I move past resentment? Ooh, um, sorry, I just kind of messed that up. Um, give me one second. Uh, yeah, this is the problem with technology. Um, all right. How can I move? Here it is. How can I move past resentment of others in the church who have hurt me and let me down so that we can move toward unity? How can I move past resentment of others in the church who have hurt me and let me down? So first thing I want to do is just, um, make it clear that I understand that the hurt and the harm that, we experience in a lot of the arenas of our life um, are not something that are just easy to kind of move past, right? Uh, so this this questioner asks about, all right, I, I, I'm experiencing some resentment for, for people in the church, right? There's people that have hurt me. They've actually done harm uh, in my life, and, and I'm having a difficult time moving past that. So that happens in the church. It happens... Uh, it can happen at work. It can happen in our family. I mean, I wonder how many of us have people in our family who have done certain levels of harm to us that we found it very, very difficult to move past. And so the church is going to be no different, right? Like, in fact, the more you actually uh, insert yourself into the life and the fabric of the church, the more opportunity there's going to be for hurt to happen, right? That's That's just what happens when you uh, when you actually engage in uh, and allow your life to intersect with the lives of other people. Uh, this whole series, we're talking about the messy church and the reality of each of our messy lives. And so when our messy lives come into contact with other messy lives, there's the potential for, uh, for difficult things, uh, harmful things, hurtful things to happen in our lives. So it's, first of all, no, it's not surprising that that kind of thing can take place. The only way we can protect ourselves from that is just to remove ourselves completely from any of those environments where somebody can do us harm, right? And we, we do do that. I, I'm certainly prone to that kind of reaction. I, I'm, I'm going to avoid situations or people that I feel like are more likely to hurt or harm me. Um, you know, if I just stay away or if I kind of, turn my feelings off toward those circumstances, then I can protect myself from being hurt. Uh, but that's not actually a full way for us to live our, our humanity. Uh, we, are, we are humans who have been endowed with uh, an incredible depth of feeling and feeling those feelings is the way in which we actually experience the fullness of our human selves. And so I have to be careful just like cutting myself off from other people. All right. So we get to the point where, all right, somebody has hurt me. What do I do about that? Uh, now, if you're talking about, you know, some specific thing that a person has done, let's say uh, somebody has offended you, the Bible actually does prescribe a process by which we can seek reconciliation. Um, so let's say uh, somebody has wounded me, somebody has harmed me, uh, and they may or may not be aware of the fact that they've even done that. Uh, believe it or not, Jesus actually puts the onus on the person who has been hurt to initiate the reconciliation process. Uh, that is, uh, I am supposed to go to the person who has hurt me and 
tell them that they have hurt me, tell them that they have offended me, uh, why what they said or what they did um, hurt or harmed me. And hopefully the outcome of that conversation um, is that the person apologizes, like genuinely apologizes and seeks forgiveness for that hurt that they have done. And then it's on me to actually forgive that person. And hopefully through that, the relationship can then be restored. Now, obviously that doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes when you let somebody know that they've hurt you, they make excuses uh, or they dismiss what they've done or they just flat out tell you that you're wrong or that you shouldn't feel that way. And so there is no resolution to that relationship. And so now you continue to live in this sort of strained state of that relationship. And so the second step that Jesus encourages us to take is to bring alongside another person or two and have that conversation again, now with sort of the force of some mediating influence that hopefully um, can in a very mature and spiritual and redemptive way, try to bring some reconciliation to those two parties. And again, if the person who has done the offense is unresponsive, uh, then the matter is supposed to be brought to the church. And uh, if nothing is done from that, then like that person actually is put out of fellowship with the body. Right. So so there is a process for doing that. I think a lot of times, though, like this question is just coming out of. Um, all right. I just I, I just feel this resentment and I need to get over it. And uh, so beyond the process of reconciliation, I do think it's important for us to remember. And again, I, I don't say this as a way to just dismiss the harm that we sometimes experience or to make it sound like it's it's unimportant or that we should just get over it. But we are called as Christians to forgive. Uh, not only are we to forgive those who we go through this process of reconciliation with, but sometimes we're even called to forgive those who have hurt us and that don't care or are glad that they've hurt us. Right. We're supposed to go so far as to even forgive our enemies prior to their seeking our forgiveness. Right? It's a reflection of the way Jesus has forgiven us. Uh, we are told in Scripture that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Right. Like Jesus didn't wait for us to make the first move before he came and saved us. And he initiated it all and, and provided for it all. In fact, at the very moment where he was being crucified on the cross, what did he call out? but for the Father to forgive those who were doing this very, very unjust thing to him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And to the extent that the Spirit enables us to, and this is uh, a deep work of God's Spirit, no doubt, right? Because the, the wounding and the harm that is done to us sometimes can be more than what we feel like we can actually handle uh, or deal with. And so we need the Spirit's help. We need, uh, we need a... a, a a deepening relationship with God to actually help us through the pain and the suffering associated with that harm and, uh, and, and come to a place where we can actually, like actually and authentically forgive those who have hurt us. Because we all know resentment doesn't do us any good, right? Resentment doesn't get us anywhere. In fact, resentment, it just allows for the wounding to continue to have a present impact on us and it keeps us from being able to move forward. So anyway, those are uh, just kind of some of the thoughts that uh, I'd share with regard to, um, to resentment. Um, the second part of the question says, you know, people let me down. How, how can I get over that so we can move toward unity? And, uh, and again, it's not to belittle the idea that people let us down, but let's, that's, that's going to happen. People are going to People are going to let me down. I'm going to let other people down. There are going to be times where I'm not at my best. And so trying to move forward with a, a as high and as deep a, a sense of grace for other people as possible, I think, becomes very important. Uh, all right, this next question. Why is there not a cross in the church? Um, I don't. There's no there's no particular reason why we don't have a, a cross in the church. Uh, from time to time, we in the in the way our stage is set up or decorated, um, we will 
from time to time have a cross in the church. And so there's certainly nothing wrong with it. I, we don't not have a cross because we think that if a church puts a cross on the stage or has it somewhere in the sanctuary that they're doing something wrong or setting up a, uh, you know, something to idolize there. Like I said, I mean, we will from time to time have that. Uh, why do we not have a cross all the time? Well, I, uh, while, uh, while some churches may always have that, it's, it's certainly not a requirement. It's not something that is mandated. Like if you're going to be a place of assembly or of worship, then you need to have a cross as kind of a figure in your church. In fact, I imagine that there was no such thing in the experiences of the early church, uh, many of which were meeting in people's homes. But even as they started to grow a little larger than what a home could accommodate, uh, and maybe they secured other more public places of gathering and worship. I, I think the last thing that they were worried about was whether or not they had a cross um, that was like at the center of things. They preached the cross, right? What was important was the, the, the proclamation of what the cross means for us, what the cross means for the world, how the cross recognizes the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, right? So the proclamation is undoubtedly important, whether or not there's a, uh, a physical, tangible expression of that, uh, I, it, it's not as important. Uh, and so, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I'd be, I try to not be too concerned uh, about that, but um, if anybody wants to have a conversation, a deeper conversation about that with me, or as, you know, maybe a, a different way of looking at that, I'd certainly welcome um, a, another conversation on that. All right, what are opportunities does the church offer for unity to be established and built? Uh, this is a great question. I love this question, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to criticize the question. But the first thing I want to say about it is that, like, the very language of the question, I think, is contrary to the spirit of what we're trying to get at. Um, and what I mean by that is that the tone of the question is it is still sort of living with this distinction between the like the church as an enterprise or institution or organization um, as being different from the people that actually compose that institution. You know what I mean? Like the, 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 it's like the person's kind of sitting in their seat and saying, all right, hey, you, the church, what opportunity are you offering for me and the other people that are sitting around me to establish unity as that as if it's the responsibility of some institution to make this happen so uh, i am going to say that there are there are ways that we from a, an organizational standpoint i think try to foster unity and community and things like that that's that's part of uh what those who are in leadership here are trying to do or commissioned to do as kind of part of their job. So we, yeah, I do recognize that. But again, I want to, I, I want this to move down from like a central form of government as if, okay, well, you know, until Josh finds out a way to create an opportunity for unity, there's no way that we're going to be able to actually create unity. Like this needs to be springing up from us. It needs to come out of a desire for us to feel uh, like a more vested part of what is the church, right? That we're recognizing more. We're not just these individual maverick molecules or uh, the term I used this past Sunday, uh, you know, these free agents that show up on a Sunday morning and worship with a bunch of other free agents. But what we need to do is recognize that we are part of something. We are part of the body of Christ. And that needs to uh, spark a desire for community and for a deeper sense of unity. And so it, I think it's on us as individuals, on each of us, to look for ways to do that. Now, from an organizational standpoint, are there opportunities to do that? Yeah, I think there are. Uh, if you talk to somebody who's involved, uh, somebody that's participating on like a regular ministry team, like talk to somebody on the tech team and ask them if they feel like they're part of something. I, I bet you they'd say that they, they do, right? Like there's some other Christians that they are working together with and cooperating with 
to, to do something, to fulfill uh, some particular mission or calling and to build up the body of Christ through the way they serve. Uh, talk to somebody who volunteers regularly in kids ministry or in the kitchen or on the first impressions and ushering team, things like that, and ask them, like, do you feel like you're part of something? There's a really good chance that the association they have through that network makes them feel like a, a, a more unified part of the whole body. When we don't feel unity, it's probably because we have we've not interjected ourselves into some particular life of the community of faith. Um, that is, we're not we're not participating in a, uh, a small group, say, you know, like in a Bible study, where it's not certainly studying the Bible with some other people is an important part of it, but it's also an opportunity for us to just be doing life with some others. Uh, so you want to feel more unified to the church, you know, invite a few people over to your house and share a meal together and have a spiritual conversation about what God is doing in your life or what you hope that God would be doing in your life. And um, yeah, so look for ways to serve, look for ways to volunteer. Uh, I think that when we uh, we recently had a community event called Summer Splash, and, and so it was an opportunity for a whole bunch of people to participate in this thing. And I don't know. I mean, I felt like uh, I felt like I was part of something as I was doing it. I felt like I was uh, one cooperative piece together with scores of other cooperative pieces that were doing something um, that was meaningful both for our church body and also for our community. So look for some opportunities to serve. Look for a, a, a group that you can be a part of, and I think you'll start to feel um, a, a, a deeper tie, deeper connection uh, to, to the church. Is there a reason why we as a church don't, sit, don't do a say hi to your neighbor moment during the sermon or worship? How can we build unity if we don't know each other? Uh, so this, this person's referring to what has been the experience of many of us in church. Um, I remember that uh, yeah, I've been part of churches where there was this kind of thing, like over the course of the service, maybe after the, uh, after the singing concluded and before transitioning into the sermon, everybody was given an opportunity to kind of walk around and uh, shake hands and say hi to people and, and, and do that kind of thing. And, and we don't do that. So the question is, well, why do we not do it? Is it a bad thing? No, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think the number one reason why we don't do that is because of the negative experiences that can occur if we actually did that. Uh, so we're, we are a community church. We are what I would consider to be like an easy entry level kind of place for a person to, to come to church that doesn't it's not part of their habit or practice to go to church or maybe somebody that's never gone to church ever before. This is likely to be the kind of place where they might feel most comfortable as opposed to some other churches that are, they're so tight knit and so closed in that when a new person comes, like they are immediately recognized as a new person and they're made to feel like a new person or a strange person. And so we try, we actually try to avoid that while we want for guests and people who have come for the first, second time to find ways where they can enter into uh, at their at their speed, at their discretion. They can enter into the life and the community of the church. We don't want to force that. And uh, so I know that saying hi to your neighbor is a it's a harmless thing, except that some people might experience. Um, not uh, let's say let's just put yourself in the in the position of a new person All right, what are we going to tend to do you know when when the uh, the worship leader or the host or or if i uh, prior to preaching say all right you know go say hi to site to someone we tend to go and say hi or to recognize people that we know uh, and leave out people we don't know and so what can happen is an experience where somebody feels like like nobody said hi to me, nobody greeted me, nobody even seemed to care that I was there, although they, there was plenty of instances where people cared that other people were there. And so we're trying to avoid that and, and just get away from 
creating experiences that might be awkward uh, for some, especially the, especially the newcomer. We want guests to feel as comfortable and as at home as possible so that they can, again, on their terms, um, self-select into uh, the community. So I get it. Like, uh, and, and also I would just say, like, how much unity does that actually build? I think we could, how about instead of having a moment in the service, how about instead of rushing out the door into our cars in the parking lot and getting out of here as quickly as we can, how about we linger? <laughs> how about we stick around? How about we then, after the service concludes, uh, seek out somebody and have a conversation with them, whether it's five or 10 minutes, you know, just catching up with somebody. How about instead of barely showing up for church on time or even a little bit late, what if we are intentional about getting here 15, 20 minutes? I know this is crazy, but what if we showed up for church 20 minutes early, um, got our coffee or lemonade or whatever we're drinking and then just sort of made ourselves available in the public spaces uh, to recognize somebody we know or don't know and drum up a conversation at that moment. I think that would actually probably uh, build more unity than just the typical, all right, everybody say hi to the person on your left or right, and then we kind of move on with the service. All right, uh, how does Curtis Lake Church connect with other churches if we are to come together as a whole why is there division among the churches? Uh, and then there's, there's another question that I will tie to this one uh, that comes a little later on, which is, are you saying the body is just contained within Curtis Lake? What about all the other churches around us? Shouldn't we create unity with other churches? Right. So these two questions are kind of related to one another. Uh, let me deal with the easy part first. Um, are you saying the body is just contained with Curtis Lake? No, absolutely not, right? The body of Christ is comprised of the church universal, which are all of those who have professed faith in the saving work of Jesus and have proclaimed their allegiance to him as Lord, past, present, and future, um, inside and outside the walls of this church, inside and outside the walls or borders of this country, right? Like this is a, there is the universal church, which is every single person who professes faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, right? So the body isn't just within Curtis Lake. However, the Cur what Curtis Lake is, is um, it is a, it's, it's a body right, of believers uh, that have a, they have a place in the context of the whole church. So we are, we're a local gathering of like-minded believers that have a calling to love one another, right, to love those who are also part of this body, and then to express God's love to the community in which we live and to the rest of the world. And so what you have at any given time in the world is lots of these little body expressions of the whole body of Christ, right? And so we are joined together with other bodies of Christ, uh, some of which are located right here within the borders of our city, right? There's multiple uh, Bible-believing and Jesus professing Christians who are part of that whole body uh, of Christ. And so the question of, well, shouldn't we create unity with other churches? Or um, getting back to the first question, how does Curtis Lake connect with other churches? And if we are to come together as a whole, why is there division among other churches? It's a really good question. And... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can answer all of it, but um, related to that, somebody might reframe the question, well, why do we, if we're supposed to be unified in our faith, why do we have all these different denominations, say? Why do we have all these different churches that have maybe minor differences in their, their faith or practice or teaching that kind of makes them different and distinct from 
some other churches that might have different teachings or practices. Um, one thing I'd say is that the, the reality of, <coughs> excuse me, the reality of all these different denominations that exist is I think it's a problem of, uh, and I'm just kind of making up this term, I don't know if it's a good one, but uh, of spiritual affluence or Christian affluence. And what I mean by that is that when you're, t if you were to roll back time back to the early church prior to there being any denominations, you'll find that the church was, um, it wasn't split up into like a bunch of different kinds of churches. Like you didn't have something like the Lutheran church and the Methodist church and um, the Assembly, Assembly of God church and the Baptist church and the Seventh-day Adventist church or the uh, Advent Christian church, right? You didn't have all these different denominations. And I think the reason for that is because they, they benefited from the very, very central focus of the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as being like, this was the, this was the defining characteristic of what it meant to be a Christian, right? And that is that a person abandoned their old life and committed in full allegiance their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, right? And that, like, that was it. And so what would, if we fast forward, what would become all these sort of doctrinal disputes or differences that differentiated between kinds of churches. Like the, the, the early church couldn't afford that. Uh, in fact, I think if you were to go to certain parts of the world where the church is largely underground, meaning the church is, the, the, the church is undergoing persecution, uh, maybe the church is illegal, uh, like the idea of being a Christian would be illegal in some particular government. So the church is underground and, and um, rather than people meeting in a public space like we do on a Sunday morning, they're meeting privately uh, and not, not trying to, to raise a whole lot of attention uh, about their public worship services. They're still doing it. But if you, if you, if you found a place where God was moving in that way, I, you're not going to find like a, a whole bunch of different kinds of underground churches that you can choose from. Right. Like that's, and that's what I mean by like Christian affluence. Um, we, we just, we live in an environment where we have, we have been so affluent, so rich in uh, our heritage and, and we are so consumeristic in our tendencies that we have created a buffet of kinds of churches that you can join or participate in depending on what best suits your fancy, right? Like we have the privilege of, well, I don't like this particular church, so I'm going to go to this church. And that's a problem of affluence. Uh, I, I don't think that this is at all following the design that God intended for us. Like we we shouldn't be so well known for the way in which we are distinct and distinguished from one another. Uh, but instead, what we need is a, 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 a stronger pull toward the central message of the cross. Right. Paul said in one place, I sought to know nothing among you other than Christ and him crucified. Like Paul wasn't getting into all of these massive side issues that were going to ultimately result in different kinds of churches. Like, oh, you want, you know, you want this particular kind of flavor for your church. Well, you should go over here. You want this kind of flavor. You should go over here. It was, it was all about Christ. Like Jesus was, he was preeminent over and above everything else. And what people were actually doing was they were surrendering their preferences. They were surrendering their whole lives, forsaking everything uh, for the sake of Jesus. To become a Christian in the early church days was a big deal. For some, it meant severing ties with members of their family, members of their community. For some, it meant tremendous levels of persecution and hostility coming from uh, 
from the from the world outside for some it meant the ultimate price of even dying for their faith and so like being a christian was serious business and i think that for us being a christian has become for a lot of us it's become less serious business and so we've we've come we you know, we, we go to church if and when we want to. We go to the church that we think suits us best or is going to best cater to whatever particular needs we have. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of created a lack of unity and some division among us. So what do we do about that? I mean, that's just that is our reality. So what do we do with that? Our, uh, should our should our church, should Curtis Lake Church have more fellowship with other churches in our community. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that'd be great. Uh, I don't, hopefully we're not purposefully segregating ourselves from other churches simply because they're other churches. I can tell you that I, uh, I spend time with other pastors, you know, people who pastor other churches. Some of those churches may be similar to ours. Some of them may be very different from ours. And we have, and we have fellowship. Uh, we learn from one another and hopefully are building each other up, even though we are you know, specifically called to, uh, to pastor the churches that we currently pastor. Uh, and so I think that that fellowship, that community is important. It's great. And I think that however we strive for unity, what we need to have is an attitude that uh, certainly the person that is a devoted follower of Jesus in some other church, um, either in town, out of town, or across the world, like that person is also a brother or sister to me, right? They, they, are, they are a member of the body of Christ, and as such, they are a, a brother or sister to me. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I, there, there's an affiliation there, but I think it's also okay for us to be very, very deeply entrenched in the priorities of our particular church, right? If we, if we, if we aren't, if we have this sort of abstract idea of what it means to be a part of the, the big B body of Christ, universal, without any attention whatsoever to the part that we actually play in our, like the body of Christ here, the, 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 the body of Christ that we are part of, and living in and with, then, um, then we're just we're not we're not going to be proximate enough to other individuals to actually intersect with other people's lives. We're not gonna we're not gonna have that sense of actually being like part of something because we're not really going to be uh, part of something. All right. Um, how do we change the view that people have of the church? That is certainly um, certainly something uh, that's a that's a big task <laughs> that we have ahead of us, right? Because the 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 history of the church is riddled with all kinds of reasons why people should have or could have a bad view of the church. And uh, and and so what I would say about this is that what, what our responsibility is that the the one thing that we can actually be responsible for is. How do we work toward allowing the world around us to have a positive view of our church? Um, like I, there's nothing I can do about other churches that are outside of the scope of my influence. Um, I, I, there's just nothing I can do about that. There's nothing I can do about a church across the nation that makes news because the, the pastor of the church did some bad things or because there was uh, an abusive kind of culture and so the world has glommed onto that and has made that sort of the headline and is trying to cast that as typical of the church. There's nothing I can do about that. There's nothing I can do about the bad name that Christianity uh, sometimes bears because people call themselves Christians and then act in ways that are unchristlike. There's there's just, there's nothing I can do about that. And I have to try to remove myself from responsibility uh, for those things. It is okay for me to grieve that. Um, like I should, when, when Jesus's name is trudged through the mud because of the way somebody has been a poor reflection on Jesus, 
I need to grieve that. And to the extent that I'm able to like publicize grief for that, when the church has done harm uh, to uh, to certain individuals or to whole kinds of people, then uh, like I, my heart needs to, to grieve and yearn for healing uh, in that regard. But what I can do from a day-to-day basis is surrender my life to Jesus, walk in the spirit and the power of God's spirit and seek to be filled with his grace and to demonstrate a real, true, authentic and genuine love for other people that emanates from a life committed to Jesus. What I need to do is I need to fully invest myself into the ethic of Jesus's kingdom, laying aside all that selfishness and self-will and greed and malice and jealousy and strife, like, you know, all of those things that do not pertain to a life surrender to Jesus. Like I need to put those things to death. I need to, in the words of the Bible, I need to crucify the flesh. I need to crucify my flesh and I I need to live out my life for the sake of and the benefit of others. I need to love people. I need to love my neighbor. I need to love my brother and my sister. I need to love my enemy. I need to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. And if I do that, and if I can get some other people to join along with me that journey of endeavoring to do that to the very best of our ability, again, empowered by God's spirit, right? Because we can't do it in our own strength. I can't do that myself. I'm not naturally inclined to love other people, especially other people who would uh, position themselves as an enemy to me. That's not a natural inclination for me. So I need God's help. I need God's spirit. I need to be committed to a life of prayer, um, a life of reflection, a life of studying and listening to God's word and to God's voice speaking to my heart. Like every single day, I need to constantly surrender myself and crucify the flesh. Like, which, like, I have to crucify the flesh in the morning. Um, in the afternoon, in the evening, and, and all the times in between. You know, it's like a hobbit um, who has breakfast and then second breakfast, right? Um, and then 11Zs. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, I have, it's a constant thing that I have to engage in. And, and if I do that, if other people come alongside me and, and, and the body of Christ at large is doing this consistently, demonstrating the love, the real tangible expression of Jesus' love to the world, then that's what's going to change the view of people uh, toward the church. It, it, I mentioned it in, in, in the message that there have been times where the church has done everything right and has really, really been this incredible demonstration of God's love, and there's an element of the world that will still oppose it. Nothing we can do about that. Uh, but what we can do is we don't have to be our own worst enemy in giving people reason to distrust the church, right? Because... Um, because we're, we're, we're walking in ways that are actually unchristlike, right? So we have to immerse ourselves in the, the mercy and the love and the grace of Jesus, um, which I think will give us the ability to speak the truth in love, which is what we always want to do. All right, what are the essential doctrines? Uh, so again, I, I talked about how there are, there are matters of essential doctrine, essential Christian living, that are uh, like to, to deviate from those it means to actually not be part of the body of Christ, right? Like we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be fighting over um, what are the essential matters. So what are they? Um, well, you know, it's funny if you, <laughs> if you go to uh, various churches, you're going to find that, uh, they may have, some of them may have very short lists of what are the essential doctrines and others that have really, really large lists of essential doctrines. Like, hey, if you're going to be part of our church and you have to do all this. I think, personally, I think the simpler the better. Um, here's, here's the bottom line. I mean, I'm, 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 I, I, don't even, I, don't, I don't even know that I can articulate 
all right, here are the, 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 the three things that you absolutely have to believe. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't those things, but here's the problem. The problem is that the, the centrality of the gospel is based on the message of the cross, right? Like it's always going to come back to the cross. It's always going to come back to uh, what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished for us in the cross and the power that he has demonstrated through his resurrection, right? And so that becomes the sort of the, the center um, of what our faith is to be anchored in. When our faith is actually anchored in those things, there are going to be ramifications for that belief. In other words, if I actually believe what God has invited me into and what God has called me into, then that belief is going to, over time, move toward a deeper demonstration of what that belief is. So in other words, if, like, if I believe that Jesus died for me, died, he died for my sin, right, and that the cross provides for the atonement for my sin, um, it doesn't mean that I will never sin again, but it does mean that there's going to be a change or a transformation in my attitude towards sin. That, that prior to actually believing in and embracing the message of the cross, I was willful and unapologetic about how I lived my life away from and contrary to God. But if I actually, if, if my belief in Jesus is more than just some verbal profession and it's actually a matter of my heart where I have surrendered myself wholly to him, then that is going to have ramifications for my thoughts, my attitudes, and my behaviors. What, I, what will actually happen is there will be less worry about you know, what's essential and what's not essential, right? Because I'll be moving toward the center of the message of the cross and what that calls me to. And this is what it calls me to. It calls me to pledge my undying allegiance to Jesus as Lord, right? The reality is if, if, if I lived in full allegiance to Jesus as Lordship, and another person lived in full allegiance to Jesus' lordship, and another person lived in full allegiance to Jesus' lordship, there's not going to be any fight, any divisiveness, any argument about what is essential and what is non-essential. Like, that, that actually wouldn't exist. The problem is that, like, I fail to live up to living in full allegiance to Jesus' lordship. And so does this other person, so does this other person. And so in that, it creates this divisiveness, right? Because now I want to take something like God's will and I want to twist it and contort it to match my will. And that's what's going on, right? That's, that's where the breakdown in, in Christian unity, that's where church splits, that's where uh, whole entire denominations are finding themselves separating into two completely different entities over... Um, you know, some particular, it could be a social issue or some other doctrinal issue. Like, why is that happening? Well, it, ultimately it's happening because we are taking God's expressed will for our lives as human beings and we are contorting it to match our will. And my will is different from somebody else's will and from somebody else's will and from somebody else's will. And so all of a sudden now you have people that are moving in different directions instead of toward what is actually essential. Um, all right, a couple more questions. Uh, I'm new to my faith. How do I dive into the hole when I'm still so new and learning how to walk alongside Jesus? Uh, first of all, so like this is awesome, right? I mean, people who are newly coming to Christ and wanting to find out, all right, how do I, how do I live out this Christian life? Uh, that's a wonderful thing. So how do you do it? How do you, how do you, how do you dive into it? How do you, 
how do you actually find yourself being assimilated into when uh, the, uh, this person says whole Lori, I guess it is. Um, so like Lori's recognized, like, all right, I want to be a part of this whole body. Um, how do I do that? And, uh, fortunately I think that the culture of our church is very inviting for a person that actually wants to do that, to do that. And so like, you know, going back to taking advantage of opportunities to get together with other people and like invest in your spiritual life, um, like get into, get into a Bible study, get into a small group, join a team of other people, like start making friends with people who are also walking alongside Jesus, right? Like prior to a life of faith, there's a really good chance that most of your associations, most of your relationships are with people that they're not, they're not walking alongside Jesus, right? And so their lives are, the, the trajectory of their lives is, it's just in a different direction from the one that you're wanting to go on. And so what you need to do is you need to, like we're supposed to be living in community with one another. So um, attach yourself to people who are walking alongside Jesus and start walking alongside them. That's kind of what discipleship looks like. Jesus demonstrated it in the three plus years that he did ministry on this earth, right? He, he, uh, he allowed other people to attach themselves to him and to learn from him and to walk alongside him, to see how he did it, to see, uh, to learn how he thought and, 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 and in that start to become more like him. Right. And so that's what we're all doing. And we're all in different points along that journey. Some of us are, um, more mature than others. Uh, but like we are all on that gamut or on that spectrum of journeying with Jesus in a place where, um, we're called to tie in and associate ourselves with others. And so, yeah, like, Get yourself in an environment where you can attach yourself to somebody that maybe is a little further along that journey. And I think you'll find that to be very, very helpful as you're uh, navigating that journey yourself. All right. Last question. Does the church body need authorization from the Bible to perform church worship in a certain way? For example, um, does the church body need authorization from the Bible to perform church worship? I'm not really sure what exactly is being asked here. Um, so let me just kind of do my best with it. When we're talking about the church body, I think, again, it's important to remember that like the body is, we are, we are the body, right? And uh, a couple weeks ago, I referred to how scripture teaches us about this concept of the priesthood of all believers. And so that means that there is no, there's no real distinction between, um, the lines that are sometimes drawn in society, like between clergy and lay people. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't wear a collar um, signifying that I, you know, that I am a, a member of the clergy. Uh, I am an ordained minister, right? Meaning that there has been uh, some recognition on the part of uh, sort of a um, authoritarian body that has, has, not given me permission per se, but has, uh, but has vetted, has ensured that like, I, I belong in uh, a place where I am fulfilling this office of, uh, pastoral ministry. Right. And so there's, there's something good about that. Like from an ecclesial, ecclesiological standpoint, it's, it's nice to know that we can have systems in place where, uh, people are, uh, they're educated, properly um, and living uh, a life that sort of at least, you know, like lives up to what, what it is that they're being called to do. But at the end of the day, there's no, there's no qualitative difference between me as a member of the clergy and my relationship with God versus a person who's not a part of the clergy. Um, so when we're talking about authorization to perform church worship. Listen, church worship can happen without the, uh, certainly without me being there. Uh, I, I hope that, I hope that worship is happening for the members of our church body, uh, individually and privately at various times throughout the week. Like I hope our lives when we, when we're not together are being lived out as expressions of worship toward God. And that when people decide that they're going to get together um, and, you know, maybe worship in a sort of collective that 
yeah, the like I don't have to authorize that. If, if there was a handful of people that decided they wanted to start um, meeting together to pray uh, a few times a week, like you don't need authorization from the church or um, you know for any like special revelation to happen before that that can take place, right? The body is empowered to take on um, the the privilege of of worshiping God, of gathering together for prayer, of gathering together to study uh, God's word. I, I, again, like you know, people want to make a start a Bible study. You don't need permission from the church to do that. You don't need my presence or somebody else's presence or authority in order to do that. Um, like go for it, right? Let's be the body of Christ. Uh, let's live out what God is calling to us uh, or calling us into. All right, that's it. That's all we got for this week. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. God bless.